0: Good morning. Welcome to the School of Theology and Prayer at the parish of Ascension St. Agnes, Washington, DC. I am Sarah Coakley, assisting priest and theologian in residence at the parish. And today, in this second of a post-Easter cluster of four Sunday morning discussions of topical doctrinal themes for this time of year, we shall be reflecting, following on from last week's discussion of resurrection, on the topic of ascension, what does it mean for us that Christ ascended into heaven? It is, of course, the Sunday after Ascension Day today, and thus a special patronal day for our own parish. So special greetings to our own parishioners. But welcome too to all those joining us from outside Washington, and indeed from outside the United States. Now today, I'm particularly glad to welcome a co-speaker to this webinar, Professor William Wapahowski, who holds the McDevitt Chair in Catholic Theology at Georgetown University, and is also currently the Chair of the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at Georgetown. Thank you, Bill, for joining us.
1: Thank you for Arthur
0: inviting is a Catholic theologian and theological ethicist who also has a particular interest in modern Protestant theology, especially that of Karl Barth. And as we'll see, that's going to be relevant to today's discussion. Finally, before we start, let me just remind you about how our webinars are conducted so that you can join in by asking questions as we go along, if you wish. You will, I hope, already have received a handout for today on your email, um, which you may look at as we go along. And if and when you want to ask a question, you need to wake up the black toolbar at the bottom of the video. And there you'll see the Q and A icon. Right click on that. And then click into the white box that will come up and type your question, giving your name, please. And then press return for the question to go through to someone I'm going to reintroduce you to again this week our technological and theological assistant, Amanda Bourne from Virginia Seminary, who is working in the background to receive and sort questions and will appear when needed to feed back those questions to our speakers at a couple of moments in today's proceedings. Thank you, Amanda. So let's start, without further ado, on New Testament evidences for the Ascension. The obvious one to go through first are the two accounts of the Ascension that we get from the author Luke, who gives us one very short account at the end of his uh, gospel um, in Luke 24 but then repeats it, rather interestingly, at the beginning of Acts. And I think the first question we want to ask is, what is the difference between these two accounts, and why does he change certain things at the beginning of the book of Acts? At the end of Luke 24, Jesus simply disappears out of sight after a blessing. At the beginning of the book of Acts, however, there's a concern about the times and seasons of Jesus's um, future, as it were, and um, explicit mention of the coming of the Holy Spirit. But also it's clear that as Jesus leaves and departs this time into a cloud, he has every intention of coming again. And so we're talking about a period when the church is beginning, but it doesn't expect necessarily to be very long. Bill, would you like to comment on what you see as the importance of the two different accounts here?
1: Sure, Sarah. Uh, Thank you again for inviting me. Hi, everybody. Um, I I see it along these lines. Um, I think the two accounts uh, distinguish without separating uh, the time of the resurrection uh, and the present age uh, bordered by the ascension of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead Uh, at the end of Luke. Um, Jesus is pointing towards the Acts account by saying to the, to the disciples, stay in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power. The one who can say that is the one who has established his power as the Messiah foretold by the scriptures, such that repentance and the forgiveness of sins can be proclaimed to the nations. Um, so the end of the resurrection time would be the ascension. Now, that is extended in Acts to 40 days, during which time Jesus teaches by the power of the Holy Spirit and establishes proofs uh, to uh, af- confirm uh, his reality is risen. Uh, but then, yes, as you said, um, in this case, the ascension is in Acts is the time when, if you will, the other shoe drops from the Lucan account. Uh, he promises the giving of the Holy Spirit in a few days. He um, uh, Uh, Disappears behind a cloud, uh, which biblically can refer not to absence but actually God's continuing presence. uh, Such that His coming again does not rule out His continuing to come through the power of the Holy Spirit. So I see uh, the end of resurrection time being marked by the ascension, which is also the beginning uh, of the present age of the Christian community and proclamation.
0: So we really owe it to Luke to sort of tidy up in this way and to give us the beginning of the church year. But he also comes close to identifying uh, Ascension with the coming of the Spirit. Um, And that's one of the conflations we do find in the New Testament. You can say there's a shade of that also at the end of Matthew with the Great Commission, even though this is not an Ascension appearance, but with the insistence that now it's time to go and convert the world. Um, And Jesus promise that he will be with everyone always. And in order to be that, he has to, as it were, end his earthly appearances, um, including the resurrection ones. Amanda, could we look at a picture from a little later, which is a wonderful um, conflation from the sixth century from the Rabula Gospels, um, where by this time you see the iconographers are enjoying putting together a whole lot of biblical evocations. So at the top, we have the ascended Christ. At the bottom, we have the church with Mary at the center. So Mariology was going to become very strongly associated with the ascension. Mary is a founding member of the church. And if you wonder what those funny kind of furry things are under Jesus' feet, this is a wonderful double allusion, both to um, Elijah's ascension in a chariot, to see the chariot wheels, um, and also with that, to um, Ezekiel's vision of the four beasts in Ezekiel 1. So we've got, a, an, a, iconographers can do this. They can get away with larding different um, texts on top of one another. But basically what this is saying is the moment of ascension is also the moment of the coming of the spirit and of new mystical powers, just as Elijah had. So let's pass on now to other texts in the the New Testament, because you might think that the only mention of the Ascension (coughs) is in Luke and Acts, but that's not true. If you start digging, there's an awful lot more Ascension going on, and I'm just going to mention a very few texts and then have Bill comment again. So if we dig a bit, we see that even the wonderful hymn in Philippians 2, being in the form of God, Jesus thought uh, that uh, he should not grasp onto power, but be incarnate. That hymn, probably um, actually not uh, composed by Paul, but uh, already in existence um, before Paul, tells of course, about how Jesus comes down in incarnation and then returns, is highly exalted. So that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. So this thematic of incarnation and return runs right through the Pauline literature and is maybe associated with a very elusive remark in 2 Corinthians 5.16, where Paul talks about Jesus after the flesh and not after the flesh. I don't think he's saying that Jesus' human flesh ceases to be significant when he goes back up to heaven, but rather that he can no longer be constrained, as it were, into um, the specific location of his earthly life. And then, in the Epistle to the Hebrews has, has recently been um, uh, illuminated wonderfully by a, a lot of new scholarship on the Epistle to Hebrews, particularly that of David Moffat. Um, we see that the high priest who passes into the heavens is the resurrected slash ascended Christ, who continues to do, as it were, sacramental sacrificial work in the heavens. It's not just a matter of everything being passed on the cross but is a continuing undertaking. So you can say that's another wonderfully rich Ascension theology in the New Testament. And then there's John. We don't often think about John, do we, Bill, as being sort of core to Ascension thinking. But when you look more closely, you see that right at the beginning of John's gospel in John 3.13, where um, Jesus is encountering Nicodemus, he makes the remark about um, uh, that that, that the only one who has um, ascended to God is the one who also descended, the son of man. And that sort of sets the tone for thinking about ascension um, in John. And also throws light, I think, on the farewell discourses, um, especially John 14, where continually Jesus is saying that he has to go away in order to to allow the spirit to come. but even more interesting is is um, the interaction with uh, Mary Magdalene, isn't, isn't it, uh, Bill? Um, when when Jesus says um, in that resurrection appearance, "Don't touch me, don't hold on to me, don't cling to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father." What do you think is going on there?
1: Well, I, I actually um, connect that with the farewell discourses um, in fourteen. Mm-hmm. Um, when Jesus announces that he is going to prepare a place, I'm going to prepare a place for you, then uh, I will come again and take you to myself. Mm. So in, in John 20, uh, when Mary Magdalene uh, reaches out uh, uh, to Jesus, he says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. I I tend to see the do not cling to me here uh, as, um, or it it can appear, and it appears to me, to be not so much a caution or not merely a caution and not even a rebuke, but um, a promise of perhaps a deeper bond,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: deeper intimacy in having ascended to the Father uh, and with the sending of the Paraclete, Jesus Christ um, uh, will bring uh, his disciples to himself mm-hmm. in union. Um, so that's, how, that, that's the way in which I understand the noli Tangere.
0: It- Maybe we can look at another picture here, which is very illuminating, if Amanda can bring it up. Um, there are about three ways of representing the ascension in the, in the tradition, and we're going to look at all of them. This one is probably not so familiar to you. It's a very early one. It's about 400 from Italy. And you can see the father's hand coming down from the right and lifting Jesus up the staircase, as it were. And underneath, we have another typical iconographical conflation of various resurrection stories because we've got three women. One of them is Mary Magdalene, but the three who are mentioned probably in the Gospel of Mark Um, and the young man outside the tomb saying he's not here. Um, And then the the guards from Matthew asleep. and, uh, and there goes Jesus. So here, unlike the Lucan idea that uh, the Ascension almost fades into Pentecost, which we saw in the Rabula Gospels, here we have the idea rather that the Ascension is almost coterminous with the resurrection. Um, and therefore, we can't say that there is a, as it were, a consistent theology of the Ascension just in the New Testament, just a very rich set of um, suggestive alternatives Um, And if we just sum up now what we've learned very briefly in this first section, and then I can take some questions if any have come in. Um, I would like to suggest that when we think about the New Testament and the Ascension, we've got a whole set of evocations that we need to bear in mind as we go forward. The first, that this is the beginning of the era of the church as opposed to the resurrection appearances. That it is about the return of Christ to the right hand of the Father after the incarnational descent, that it bespeaks the transcendent, spatially conceived placement of Christ alongside the Father, and also, according to Matthew, the ubiquity of Christ. It's by going up into the heavens that he becomes available to all. That it also means that we have a high priesthood in the heavens that continues to. Um, sacrificially atone for us. Um, And then perhaps to sum that up, what we're talking about is Christ bursting beyond, if you like, the normal constraints of a man who can be caught and held (laughs) um, into a a second person um, alongside the Father who also is going to come again at the end of the era of the church. So that, there's an awful lot going on there. Um, let's pause for one minute and see whether we have any interactions from, from outside. Um, potential question or two. Amanda.
2: Yeah, so I have, I have one question. And um, that is, um, you know, it's really interesting that there's so many different meanings, meeting, particularly in iconography. Um, But do you think that the gospel writers believe that Jesus actually physically
0: ascended into heaven? (laughs) We're going to come to that next. Um, I think what we're talking about here, I'd like Bill to see what he says too. What we're talking about here is a way of thinking about spatial placement that is deeply part of a rich, symbolic, mythological way of reflecting on the nature of the relation between the divine and the human. You know, someone asked me a trick question last week. They said, "Um, don't you think the resurrection is just a metaphor? And on that I balked. Um, But I think in the case of the Ascension, we really have to go deeply into the idea that um, there are different ways of interpreting this nexus of associations in the New Testament And in order to fully appreciate the way the New Testament writers thought, we have to gain a kind of secondary naivete in order to appreciate it. It's not that it was primitive as such, but it was deeply steeped in Old Testament imagery, Um, uh, even though the New Testament wanted to make a distinction between Jesus's ascension and Elijah's or Enoch's disappearance. Nonetheless, that was the kind of way of thinking from which one couldn't step aside. Bill, do you want to add to that?
1: Right, I mean, just to pick up the uh, point you made, Sarah, regarding uh, reflection on the the Hebrew Scriptures. um, many commentators have noted that the, um, that the uh, account in Acts uh, alludes uh, to uh, the vision of Daniel in uh, where, Uh, Daniel sees someone like the Son of Man rising on a cloud approaching the Ancient of Days to gain dominion. So there would be a case of um, figural reading that uh, I think confirms your point about thinking in a particular kind of way about about this.
0: You just uh, because you're a good Yale product, Bill. could you just oh. explain? <laughs> could you explain figurative reading to people, just in one sentence?
1: Okay. Um, the way in which the, the way in which um, certain stories or images in uh, the Hebrew Scriptures are taken up mm-hmm. to um, uh, figure or to anticipate or to uh, image mm-hmm. uh, uh, events in the the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Would be understood to be the fulfilment of uh, the history of uh, God in Israel,
0: also sometimes called typological things. Yes, types yeah. out of the Old Testament. Right. Thank you. Let's press on into um, section two. In fact, we're going to take section two and three together because here we we hit we hit the timeline of modernity, and um, <laughs> this is where our problems begin, as they did last week with the resurrection. Right. Um, let's just remind ourselves of probably the most popular way of visualizing the ascension in the early church and not just in the early church we get these uh, dangling feet types as i call them right from the sixth century and they're still with us like this one that amanda's just going to show us um on the eve of the reformation um we see jesus's feet rather incongruously That's the next one that's it there's Jesus's feet. They're very nice, I must say, these ones, they're not dangling. These ones are almost in a ballet posture. Um, <laughs> sometimes they dangle more than that. Um, and the cloud enveloping them. And uh, this, this kind of way of spatially thinking about the event, which is clearly there in the text, is what really started to bother people in the modern period, the period of science. and um, So I wonder whether you could comment on that, Bill, from the point of view of, I think, the very incisive and memorable um, critique of Rudolf Bultmann um, in the 50s and 60s, who reminded us so significantly that um, the New Testament is a world of mythology, um, and that he actually used the word crude, um, which is slightly unfortunately negative, I think. no. to to talk about the spatial relations in this story which he right. feels we have to demythologize his famous word right yes what do you think we do with us are we inexorably demythologizers in the modern period
1: well um yeah. to turn to boltman i mean it the famous remarks were made in uh, an essay written in, or published in 1953 mm-hmm. and he says quite candidly that anyone who uh, in the modern period, who was informed by scientific inquiry and technological advance, um, any such person can no longer believe uh, sincerely uh, in the New Testament view of the world. In fact, he goes, nobody really does. Mm. In particular, as you mentioned, Sarah, that um, uh, New Testament view of the world for Bultmann was focusing on this three tiered uh, understanding of the world mm. cosmology. Uh, the earth is uh, bounded above by heaven and below by hell. So he just asks quite candidly what could it possibly mean to talk about being descended and in, descending into hell or ascending into heaven if we don't believe in that three-story universe. He concludes um, on, I, I suppose, a somewhat positive note by saying the only way to profess these aspects of the creed would be to strip the mythological elements uh, from the truth uh, these uh, uh, affirmations suggest, uh, if there's any truth at all. So that's the move he makes. Now, what I find interesting in theologians who I'm reading uh, and preparing this Mm -hmm. book uh, on the Ascension is that they more or less concede the point. Yes, yeah. So uh, you'll have Karl Barth saying, uh, this is not about space travel. Um, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, again, saying, we uh, needn't uh, get in a, uh, a rocket and look for heaven above. Uh, it seems to me that while they concede that point, they do want to say that um, uh, the Ascension is a part, and an integral part of being uh, an integral part of the history of the man Jesus Christ incarnate. Mm-hmm. And as crucified and risen, and seated right at the hand of the Father, there is an important truth Mm. communicates. Um, It's not about or depends upon conceptions of space and movement, but it is about being placed or established with Mm. authority uh, as the Lord of the new creation uh, in which God's living promises may be fulfilled. So it's not about space. It's about placement, Mm. establishment of dominion and authority. And it's about establishment of that in promise of uh, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, um, all things will come to God.
0: So of course, when you say it's not about space, it's about placement. That sounds pretty paradoxical. So I know,
1: yes it the, does. The
0: placement, the placement has got to be understood in a rather pickwickian sense because we now have to start thinking more philosophically, you might say, about the, the atemporality um, of the divine realm Um, Mm -hmm. we kind of purify our thoughts at least for the moment away from this mythological thinking but I'm, I'm quite suspicious about disposing of the mythological thinking. Um, I mean, I think that's why it is so important in our liturgical life, in our imaginative life. I remember very well um, when I first heard about Bultmann and demythologization, it was when a very young Bishop John Robinson, before he wrote Honest to God, came to talk at my high school, I was 10, and got up in the pulpit and to the horror of the, of the headmistress said, forget all this. Um, This has to be demythologized. And for that, that was to me quite shocking, but also very freeing. I think later, I went on to think, but wait a minute, I don't think we can do without this story. Because the story, as it were, manifests for us in this uh, irreducible and uh, rich, um, visual, imaginative way. What more precisely, we perhaps want to say in a way that um, doesn't uh, get into a straightforward contradiction with contemporary science. You remember the, the Russian cosmonauts triumphantly said, well, we got up there and we didn't see any heaven. Um, so we're left with this issue, but I think all of us really in the contemporary period are demythologizers of a sort. You would, you would agree with that? Would you? Yeah,
1: I, uh, I would, and I appreciate, I appreciate your, your pushing back a little bit. Um, because you uh, alert to us uh, a distinction
2: uh, mm-hmm.
1: of the mythology uh, may need to be uh, put to one side in one sense. Mm-hmm. How something characterized as mythological uh, is essential uh, in Christian faith and life insofar as it depicts, as you put it, irreducibly
2: yeah.
1: um, uh, a story uh, of one who is understood to be uh, our Lord.
0: Yeah. And it's very interesting that as the um, patristic and scholastic um, reflection on the ascension unfurled, I think richer and more profound claims came to be made for it. I have to say, I didn't know this until I started to do my research for this webinar, but I checked out, of course, Thomas Aquinas, who in the 13th century draws together so much of what went before And I find him making the really very strong claim in in the third part of the Summa that Christ's ascension is the cause of our salvation. (laughs) He actually says that. Um, You might say, well, only insofar as it is a manifestation of the incarnation, but he actually says it is the cause of our salvation, both in terms of what it is for us, because it opens us up to um, uh, transformation in the exalted risen Christ and also what it is for Christ because he makes that way open for us. So there are some pretty strong claims made for the ascension in the tradition, which I think up until recently, we have tended to forget. Bultmann hit us all over the head and it became a little bit embarrassing. Um, But now as we move into our third section here, where Bill is going to be the major talker, um, what we discover is that actually there has been a great regeneration of ascension thinking in the last decade or so. Um, And why do you think that is, Bill? And well, tell us. It's been associated particularly with the work of one Catholic scholar, but building and criticizing, building on and criticizing Karl Barth. So let me hand over the story to you at this point.
1: (laughs) Correct. Quick look backward though. I would thank you, Sarah, for uh, uh, returning my attention to uh, the relevant passages in the Summa Theologiae mm-hmm. uh, on the Ascension. Uh, uh, 357.6 really is a knockout.
2: Uh, yeah. Uh,
1: uh, it's, it's a remarkable passage. So thank you for uh, bringing that to my attention. Yeah, um, it's about the last two decades. Mm. I think there's been a renewed uh, attention to the Ascension. And I do believe, at least in my in my thinking about it, that it owes to a rather remarkable book written by Pharoah in 1999 called Ascension and Ecclesia. Um, it's, uh, the book in, 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 is perplexing in many ways, but um, by and large it's a tour de force. It is a, a, reflection, in, uh, a reflection on the history of Christian thought uh, with respect to different treatments of the Ascension into the modern period, uh, concluding with stirring critiques of Catholics like Teilhard de Chardin and There's a lot of ways to try to get into this uh, concern of Pharaohs in raising the ascension, but this this is one way. I think he's concerned, and this relates to what we were talking about, the irreducible character of the story of the incarnate son Jesus uh, Christ. Uh, He's concerned about a particular peril for the Christian community. And that peril is that it would accommodate Itself to or collapse itself into some aim or goal or aspiration that would uh, uh, dissolve or erode uh, the church's faithfulness to God in Christ.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: now, I think what he wants to suggest is that in the history of Christian thought, there have been different theologies of ascension that protect against that peril, or that contribute to it. For Pharaoh, um, to insist upon the ascension of the full humanity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son, in his full humanity.
0: Not with a separated soul from the body. That's the
1: Not with a separate, exactly. Not with a separated soul from the body. That is a way in which to preserve the lordship of Christ, the lordship of his, of his history uh, in its ministry, cross, and resurrection. Um, and that offers, if you will, a critical uh, hold on the Christian community, such that, um, uh, as you said, a contrasting ascension, which would only seek to um, valorize or divinize uh, some aspect of existence, uh, such as the soul or such as the contemplative mind. uh, that, That promotes or contributes to the kind of collapse into accommodation that um uh, he's worried about
0: Mm -hmm. and uh the incarnation as such wouldn't quite do it without the ascension added right because one that could leave people thinking well perhaps after the resurrection that resurrection body is left behind as jesus um takes um, the role of the second person of the trinity no what's really important to pharaoh which was also really important to the patristic fathers and to And to the scholastics is the transformed nature of Jesus's resurrection body not being left behind in any sense but taken up
1: right that's that's correct um and and again he he wants to contrast in the patristic period as you know different approaches uh to uh the ascension he sees the um the problem uh of whether or not the full humanity is affirmed
0: Mm.
1: to be ascended, going back to the second century.
0: Mm. Uh, By the way, I see a chat question coming in about the name of this um, theologian. It is on the handout, um, but it's Douglas Farrow, and um, you can find he's written two books on this, on your handout, you can chase this up. Um, What about, Farrow also adds something in terms of how this is significant for our sacramental life. This is very important to him as as a Catholic. Yes. Uh, um, would you like to just say a word about that?
1: Sure. Thank you. Um, by the way, Douglas Farrow, just to, just to do the CV thing. Uh, <laughs> he's at McGill University in in, in Montreal. Um, yeah, I think that uh, Farrow, um makes the sort of claim that uh, others will make regarding the centrality of the essential of the full humanity of being crucial to preserve the. Um, integrity, irreducibility, and authority of Christ uh, in in Christian communal life. But he appends to that, or sees, I guess, as integral to that, the, cele- the elevation of Eucharistic life, <clears throat> and particularly the celebration of the Eucharist in self-offering and thanksgiving. Mm. So far, <clears throat> excuse me, he goes so far at least at certain points in the first book to suggest that the Eucharist constitutes the church mm. um, his point seems his point is as I understand it, that um, in the celebration of the Eucharist, you find uh, appeal to the high priestly office of the ascended Christ who um, Gives himself to us, uh, and as the eternal priest in the celebration of the Eucharist, as Thomas Aquinas has it, um, gives himself to to us to offer himself through himself uh, in interceding for us in our uh, in our Christian lives.
0: This is rather ironic because the David Moffat's work on Hebrews, which came after Douglas's first book takes a very similar line, though from a Baptist perspective um, <laughs> and has actually um, irritated a lot of other Baptists in throwing mm-hmm. light away from the absolute um, finality of the cross <laughs> onto <laughs> the priestly sacrificial act, as it were still going on in heaven, mm-hmm. which we more normally associate with the Catholic tradition.
1: It, that's, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. I can see how that would be the case mm-hmm. uh, with Moffat as, as being a, uh, coming out of the Baptist tradition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Pharaoh, um, I think, frames his understanding of the ascension with particular attention to Eucharistic questions of the presence or the absence of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he'll try to actually identify a theology of the ascension in terms of absence and presence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the presence of Christ in the Eucharist uh, reminds us of Christ's absence, which absence uh, we look forward to be uh, removed uh, in, in his coming.
0: Well, um Farrow actually starts from a both an appreciation and a criticism of Karl Barth. Mm-hmm. And um, because you've written a very important book on Barth's ethics, I, I wanted to leave time here for you to speak about what Barth says about the Ascension, because I think we could say that it was really Bart who set Farrow off in the direction he goes. Um, and he maybe criticizes him a little bit unfairly, uh, largely because he wants to take things in a much more obviously Roman Catholic direction. Um, could you tell us a bit about what Bart says? Um, it's rather towards the end of his life that he makes this a major theme. Um, but nonetheless, it's very significant, I think, isn't it? And Right,
1: yeah, I, I think so. Um, however much uh, Farrow is very deeply influenced by uh, figures in the patristic period. I do believe, insofar as he worked with um, students of Barth in one way or another in mm-hmm. college and elsewhere, King's College London, um, he really does take his cue
2: mm-hmm.
1: in certain respects theologically from Barth. Barth would indeed affirm that the ascension of Jesus Christ must be understood as the ascension of Jesus Christ, full humanity in union with his divine nature. Mm -hmm. He would indeed suggest with Pharaoh that the ascension marks uh, the present age, what Barth calls the time between the times, uh, when the Holy Spirit, uh, which is uh, an agency, an agent of Christ, is given. Um, uh, He would would agree that um, the coming of the Holy Spirit uh, is completed by the second coming of Christ.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It is, though, Sarah, you're right. I mean, in bart's um, for Pharaoh, rather tepid uh, or oh, right, disastrous understanding of the Lord's Supper, mm-hmm. that he takes issue. And on the basis of that, winds up calling not only Bart's Doctrine of ascension, but much of his theology into question. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barth uh, never really got to uh, writing, yeah. wanted to write of the Lord's Supper, but what we can gather is that he saw it like baptism as fundamentally a human response, a mm-hmm. human response of memory, recognition, and praise of God's work for us. So you don't have the, the attention to the high priestly office of the ascended Christ. Mm-hmm and pharaoh. And it's true. I think that's correct. I think Bart does subordinate or perhaps conflate um, the the priestly office into the royal and prophetic offices of Christ.
0: But at the same time, Bart, in his wonderful emphasis on the transcendent and paradoxical nature of the divine relationship with the human, Mm -hmm. puts the ascension of Christ very centrally, yes. his reflection on, he actually says, it is not only God who is now there, but as God is there, he, this man, is all there. So that's Absolutely.
2: the same
0: point that Thomas makes. Yeah,
2: well, that's he right. And
0: it in the face of all this Bultmanian criticism, um, yeah. which I think is remarkable. Um,
1: uh, yeah, that's right. And Farrell and, and may be going too far in calling into question the seriousness with which Bart um uh insists on the ascension of the full humanity of jesus christ Mm. uh it's just that bart understands the mission of the church and i shouldn't say it's just that it is that Mm. bart understands the mission of the church uh in the time between the times to be primarily a time of proclamation
2: Mm.
1: a proclamation of uh of of the victory of christ uh which of course is a proclamation which becomes real through the power of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, Pharaoh tends to think that such a mission, uh, without what appears to be a high doctrine of the Eucharist, winds up appearing disembodied, mm. it laps into a, a merely moral or universal, and to that extent, unparticular affirmation uh, of, of what the Church is preaching. So I, I, that's my take.
0: Yeah. Now,
1: sees the, the focus on proclamation to be, without, the, with, without a high doubt of the Eucharist, um, a disembodied act and universalizing and so forth.
0: And I don't think that's fair. I mean, c- can you, uh, to Bart, c- c- just my last question to hear in, in this section, because I, I see there are lots of nice questions coming in. We want to leave time for them. Is, so uh, you, as a theological ethicist who's been remarkably influenced and written a great deal about protestant ethical traditions and especially about bot at the end of the day if i press you into a corner what do you want to say as an ethicist the 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 ascension says to us that can't be said by the doctrine of the incarnation or some other dimension of our creedal inheritance
1: well um i'll try this um since i since i um since as a Roman Catholic, I try to take seriously in theology what's called the analogy of faith—the relationship of different uh, themes uh, in, in Christian witness to one another—or what you know, uh, or, or, uh, what Bart does is a kind of uh, similar kind of thing. I see I see different themes connected and interconnected, but I think the ascension um, makes uh, two points uh, that uh, are unique, and the first one has to do with a focus on or attention to. Uh, the glory and beauty of humanity uh, in its uh, in its union with God.
2: Mm.
1: Forgive me for um, uh, uh, quoting the last stanza of a hymn, which a favorite of mine, called See the Conqueror Mounts in Triumph. Uh, the last stanza goes, Thou hast raised our human nature on the clouds to God's right hand. There we sit in heavenly places. There with thee in glory stand. Jesus reigns, adored by angels. Man with God is on the throne. Mighty Lord, in thine ascension, we by faith behold our own. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: Thine ascension, we by, by faith behold our own. By faith, uh, behold in our fellow human. Uh, someone that's not merely ordinary, as C.S. Lewis put it. Uh, we behold a beauty um, in its reality, but also promise. Uh, that we um, uh, uh, fail to respond to adequately at our peril. Uh, now, to to address that union, that glory of humanity, that beauty of humanity—that's a theme that Pope Francis uh, focuses on quite a bit. We need to understand how that beauty is established through um, humanity being raised by the suffering Christ in solidarity with. Mm-hmm. In its in its fallenness, in its in its um, fallibility and its weakness, mm-hmm. Oh, so one one way to honor uh, the beauty of humanity is, in fact, to um, stay uh, in close solidarity and intercession and support of our fellow suffering human beings. Mm-hmm. I mean, some wag on Facebook Facebook said that. Um, I saw it on Ascension Thursday. Uh, uh, Today is Ascension Thursday, the day that Jesus started to work from home. Uh, And so, I know it's kind of corny, but (laughs) one way I'm thinking about these days in the pandemic is that, well, working from home may well be an act of solidarity, at least for the likes of folks at risk like myself.
0: And you said there was a second ethical point, is that? Well,
1: I, I, I conflated them, that is on one hand, there's right. the greatness of humanity and the, and the weakness of humanity, uh, and they come together in our loving service of the neighbor uh, uh, for um, uh, his or her uh,
0: flourishing. And um, I haven't put it on the reading list, but you can find it online. Um, Ratzinger, um, Pope Benedict, actually wrote a wonderful homily about the dangling feet. Um, completely novel interpretation in which he says those dangling feet are the feet that jesus asked us to wash and so the 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 elevation of the feet is a a symbolic indication that we ascend to his status insofar as we follow his example of diaconal washing of the feet of the yeah. Those, which is lovely, actually. I've never heard that before. Um, yeah,
1: it really is. Ratzinger <laughs> or the Ascension is pretty interesting. Right?
0: <laughs> now, Amanda, uh, we have some questions. Can you appear? And um... <laughs> We have a great many questions, and we, I'm we afraid to do them all, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, we want
2: to get to all of them. Um, but I'm going to bring up, one, um, I'm going to sort of summarize a couple into one, mm-hmm. um, which in some ways ties to the point that you were just making about okay, so what do we as humans do now with the Ascension mm. um, ethically? Mm. Um, and the, the question is not actually so much ethical as sort of eschatological. Mm-hmm. Um, can it be that the Ascension is pointing to a reality that Christians are not caught in temporal time and space? Mm-hmm. And how does this sort of relate to like a salvific new creation? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you want to have a go at that, Bill, or shall I blunder on first?
1: <laughs> well, I, I would say that um, contemporary, uh, okay, right. So what do you do? You wind up referring, with a, with a challenging question, you wind up referring to the literature, but I'll begin that way. Um, the way. The contemporary theology, the, the ascension that I'm um, aware of always refer uh, to um, the, you were right to call me on placement, the establishment of God's authority, Mm. Uh, in our Jesus Christ authority uh, at the right hand of the Father, the establishment of that authority is the establishment of that authority for the new creation which is transfigured or transformed out of the old. Mm. So insofar as the question has to do uh, with pointing to reality, salvific reality uh, beyond um, the world that is passing away,
0: Mm.
1: it would be, yeah, I would think so.
0: Yeah, I I think what the questioner or perhaps it's more than one is raising, is something that we need another session for um, beyond resurrection and ascension. And that's, how do we think about life after death in total? Um, And how does that uh, play out in relationship to what has classically been seen as the atemporality of the divine in relation to the temporality of this world?
2: Um, uh-huh.
0: yes. And um, so it's like taking a piece of golden string and starting to unwind it here, that uh, this is yet another implication of the Ascension, that we are required, if we're not simply going to remain in the naivete of the mythological world, to say, well, what does this mean about space and time and the divine relationship to those? Um, right. So well, is a I very mean, spot-on I, question.
1: It is, and, and at least to refer back to Pharaoh, Pharaoh has a very, very direct understanding Mm. of what uh, the time between the times involves. He understands this time to be a time of testing. Mm. He understands, in fact, the work of the church primarily in witnessing the Eucharist to the world, uh, to pose to the world a question, Mm. uh, which requires a decisive answer uh, given the coming judgment of the living and the dead.
0: Now, he's thinking very um, uh, narratively, scripturally there. Mm -hmm. Um, If one were thinking more philosophically, uh, then one would have to start to reflect on what timelessness consists of. Because very often people think that if God is atemporal, God is kind of distant. Um, That doesn't follow at all if God is the undergirding reality of all that is and the creator of all that is. But this takes some philosophical work, and it's not philosophical work that is simply there in the Bible. There are hints of it, but not much actually. This is later classical, philosophically inflected um, reflection. Agreed. Um, Amanda, another one? Yes,
2: Um, so so there's a question here um, which asks, so can Christ's physical ascension just as his physical presence during his ministry and later after his crucifixion, have been done because of mankind's inability to comprehend his message any other way. Mm. So why the, why the ascension?
0: Hmm, that's a very interesting one. Um, you mean, so uh, we needed some fireworks to um, underscore a theological point. Is that it? <laughs> um, I'm almost a bit suspicious of fireworks. Um, and I think there's, there's actually quite a good sign in the parts of the, of the Gospels too, that Jesus performed signs, this is particularly true in the Gospel of John, but he had a certain mixed sensibility about them. You seek for signs, he says, um, as if that would impress you, um, but not um, the deeper meaning of what he is there for. So, um, I'm disinclined to go in that direction, even though, by the way, particularly in the light of a very interesting throwaway remark that I mentioned last week at the end of Matthew, that you could be present at the Great Commission uh, resurrection appearance and still doubt. So, if Jesus had really wanted to zap people with um, uh, sort of manifest messages of superiority, I think he would have done a better job. Um, Bill, what do you think? <laughs>
1: well, uh, as far as the ascension goes, I mean, um, I, I agree. I agree with you, uh, especially that last point regarding perhaps having done a better job. <laughs> it's almost as if it, 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 it. What what appeared to be something that was able to be managed in a single day at mm. the Gospel of Luke, uh, forty uh, in Acts. I mean, obviously there. are Biblical uh, allusions regarding the 40. Uh, But, but Acts talks about how he gave decisive proofs
0: Mm -hmm. of himself,
1: Uh, so um, Acts
0: is concerned about that. And there's a bit of, um, there's a bit of ambiguity, I think, in Acts, because uh, I mentioned again last week, Charlie Mole, the great New Testament scholar from Cambridge, used to talk about the Christology, the doctrine of Christ in Acts, as an absentee Christology, which I don't think is quite right, but you can see what he means. Uh, Jesus is tidied away in order to the time of the Spirit. Of um, mm-hmm. course, Jesus regularly appears, um, and especially at the stoning of Stephen, and so on. It's not that he's gone off for a tea break. Um, and uh, I think we must therefore conceive of um, Christ's ascension not as a disappearance, but as a manifestation of the early church saying, are we going to get any more resurrection appearances like we had at the beginning? Answer, probably not, but that doesn't mean he's left us. On the contrary, he is, as it were, more ubiquitously present, even than I there. I think that's meant to be the point.
1: I agree. And again, given, given the folks I'm reading, it does appear to be that um, uh, Pharaoh would give an emphasis to the absence Again, thinking eucharistically, yeah. Bard Bard understands God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, always to be coming. He's all, you know, he's he's
0: dynamically coming, yeah.
1: dynamically coming uh, for 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 our sake and our salvation. Right.
0: Another one, Amanda. I think we can.
2: Yeah. One think, more? So we've actually had quite a number of people asking this in different mm-hmm. ways. Yeah. Because um, I think what the first part of the presentation opened up is, okay, so if we reject the New Testament cosmology, mm-hmm. um, what do we actually, Have. what can we actually say about the physical ascension? Yeah. yeah. Um, and what do we do with the contradictions in yeah. these gospel accounts? Mm-hmm.
0: So, um, I don't think we have um, solved all of this today, Um, we've we've gone a good way. But if if you're rigorously scientific about this, you're going to want to ask, well, wait a minute. First of all, what happened to Jesus's earthly body when he was raised? I mean, this is the crucial first point Um, from a scientific perspective. um, How come it could pass through doors, disappear, not always be recognized, something very distinctive, weird about this particular kind of physicality. And yet it was a physicality sufficient for people to recognize Jesus under the right conditions. And then the question presses further. Well, if we're not going to be supposedly naive or crude New Testament cosmologists, so where is that stuff right now? Because it is still stuff, right? And here we really hit, hit our big toe on, 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 a, on a problematic um, arena um, because we can understand how the Father and the Holy Spirit being non-physical in any sense um, are uh, not visible, as it were, live in a temporal, but also in an interactive realm with the temporal world. But the Pharaoh position is uh, not without its philosophical and scientific mysteries. Uh, would you agree, Bill? Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's just the Pharaoh's
0: position. It's, uh, it's anyone's position on this. Yeah. Right,
1: right. Um, that's right. Um, and Pharaoh, at least uh, um, in conversation, does seem to want to kick back mm. uh, in a way against um, what he might see to be a certain idolatry of science. He might, he, he might want to um, call into question. Uh, some of these matters. Now, from my perspective, while I think uh, Christian wit- Christian faith and Christian witness m- does require us to rethink notions of space, time, um, movement, and so forth, I agree with you that um, uh, Christian faithfulness has to uh, engage uh, what we know to be true uh, about space, time, and movement,
0: mm, yep.
1: as given us by science, and um, uh, if all things come together in christ <laughs> what we know to be true scientifically cannot finally contradict the witness
0: yeah so i think you and i are in agreement that a kind of full and complete explanation of the uh paradoxical placement uh that we spoke of earlier of <laughs> jesus's transformed humanity is is still an a, a a matter that the church really has never completely nailed it's never had it's never had a big um conciliar argument about this um and therefore it's never made a definitive statement about this Mm,
1: Um, i agree
0: and and what we do know is that what we look for is the coming again of that transformed fleshliness at the end of time of which Saint paul speaks in 1 corinthians 15 but um and that we will participate in it as well as the dead are raised. But even Thomas Aquinas had a great difficulty. That was probably the most difficult point in his theology, I would say, trying to explain 1 Corinthians 15. So where, where are the dead now waiting for the end of time? And his very Aristotelian um, insistence that souls never exist apart from bodies was really challenged here because he had to admit that there had to be a separation in this time in between. And by analogy, where Jesus' transformed human, human physicality is now is, I think, tremendously problematic. Right. Um, it's not technically, technically part of the Trinity, because the Trinity are the divine persons. Um, but it's Jesus qua human, if you want, that we're bothered about um, here. And... Uh, even the great minds of Coakley and Berboholsky are not going to <laughs> solve it this morning. Um, if there's one more very quick one, Amanda, we might be able to manage, but it'll have to be quick. Um, I'll ask it, but it might be
2: a... Too long to, to feel. say words about it and um, bookmark it, so to yeah. speak. <laughs> so you've talked just a touch about the relationship between the Ascension and the Eucharist. Hmm. So there's a question about how this would relate to the Orthodox context where there's a sense that in the divine liturgy, they are ascended into
0: the heavenlies to partake mm. of the Eucharist. That's lovely. I, Bill, if you'll if, if forgive me, I will answer this briefly, even though it could go on a lot longer, just because we need to finish in a moment. One of the wonderful, particularly wonderful features of the Orthodox liturgy for those of you who are familiar with it, um, and it's particularly clear at the so-called great entrance, um, is that it very deliberately plays with time. And so you step into the heavenly realms. I mean, we have that in the West as well, at the Sanctus, <laughs> But in, in the Orthodox lit- liturgy, you lay all your cares aside, and you, 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 you actually go into a zone which is, in principle, for a time not timed. This is one of the reasons why Orthodox don't mind having very, very long services. Um, (laughs) um, And so I do think this is a very perceptive question. Um, There is a connection here between the way we think about time in relation to the sacraments and the way we think about time in relation to the mystery of the Ascension. Um, And it's not the case that that's not witnessed to in the Western liturgies. Um, but I think it's much more emphasized in the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. So that was, a, that was a lovely way to complete. I want to finish, first of all, by thanking you, Amanda, and also particularly Bill Wapohuski for um, becoming a Hollywood star this morning um, <laughs> and um, helping us think through these very complicated questions about the Ascension. And I think he and I have both, in our interaction, learned a lot more about the traditions about the Ascension than we had been thinking about until recently. And if I may, um, I want to invite you to return next week to think about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit um, and the week after that, the doctrine of the Trinity, because as we shall begin to see, these topics are cumulative and they're all tied together. Let me just close with the lovely... Collect for the day in the Anglican and Episcopal tradition. Let us pray. O God, the King of glory, you have exalted your only Son, Jesus Christ, with great triumph to your kingdom in heaven. Do not leave us comfortless, but send us your Holy Spirit to strengthen us and exalt us to that place where our Savior Christ has gone before who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God in glory everlasting. Amen.